If you can turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 to 11, which I'll read in just a moment. I'm well aware that this is a carol service, and it is our normal custom at a carol service to focus on the first coming of Christ. But actually, when you look into church history, many of our church fathers used Christmas to focus on the second coming of Christ. And that's what we find here in Acts chapter 1. Let me read the passage from verse 1 to verse 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of God. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Christmas time where we remember the first coming of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And Father, we rejoice in that because through Jesus we are rescued from our sin. But Father, this morning we want to spend a few moments reflecting on the second coming of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you will prepare us that we may be ready for that day. The day when you take us home or when Christ appears. And we pray that you may speak to us through your word and through your spirit. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. The author of the book of Acts is Luke. Luke, of course, wrote the Gospel of Luke. So in actual fact, Luke wrote two volumes. Volume one was the Gospel, and volume two is the book of Acts. Here in this introduction to the book of Acts, in these first 11 verses, Luke links all the events of the person of Christ with the kingdom of God. So the key verse in this passage must be verse 3. Notice there, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Luke is recording here for us that period of time after the resurrection of Christ, before the ascension of Christ, which we know was 40 days, almost uh, almost six weeks, 
And the question is, what was Jesus doing during those 40 days? Well, two things, primarily, according to verse 3, he was appearing to the disciples. He was showing them physically, bodily, that he had been raised from the dead. He was giving them proofs concerning his resurrection. And secondly, he spent time with them, teaching them about the kingdom of God. So what we have in these 11 verses, which is a kind of an introduction to volume 2 of his writings... is is that we not only have a summary here of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the return of Jesus, but we have a master class on the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Because that is what Jesus was teaching them during those 40 days. Let me very quickly, and I only have 10 minutes, share with you four critical aspects of the kingdom of God, as we find it here in this passage. The first thing that we notice here is that the kingdom of God is historical. So notice again chapter 1, verse 1. In the former book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So we uh, notice there that uh, Luke refers to the fact that there was a former book, that this was a second book. This was volume two. And if you turn with me to Luke chapter one, turn quickly to Luke chapter one, verse one, you'll notice in the former book, Luke tells us about what he was going to do in this book. And he gives us an introduction to both volumes in actual fact. He gives us an introduction to both volumes. Notice here in Luke chapter one, verse one to four. He gives us his historical research methodology. He tells us how it came to be that he wrote these two volumes. And he wants his readers to be absolutely sure that what is written here is historically accurate. What we have here is objective history. So he tells us there, he tells us the four or five steps of his methodology. Verse 1, there were events, things that had happened Secondly, he then searched out, in verse 2, he searched out eyewitnesses, people who had been there, who had seen what Jesus did, who had heard what Jesus said. Then verse 3a, he did careful research. So he compared the testimonies of the various eyewitnesses so that what he writes here is historically accurate. Verse 3b, he then wrote a record of his research. And then in verse 4, he tells us that he presented it, he structured it, he wrote it, so that his readers would be certain about the things you have been taught. So what is crystal clear, just from the introduction, but also as you read the Gospel of Luke and as you read the book of Acts, is that what we have here is historical material, and it's reliable historical material. Back to Acts chapter 1, he says here, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So what he's telling us there is he's now going to tell us in the second volume what Jesus continues to do and teach, not in his person, but through his spirit and through his apostles. So, So what does that mean? Well, it means that Luke is telling us, verse 3, that the death and the resurrection of Christ is historical. It's telling us, verse 9, that his his ascension is historical. He's telling us, verse 11, 
that his return, which is future, will also be objective and historical. You see, the fundamental root of the Christian faith is not, is not philosophy, the philosophy you may learn from Plato or Marx or Freud. The root of Christianity, the foundation of Christianity, is not some mystical experience. It's not some secret knowledge that you have to find or acquire. No, the root of Christianity is historical. It is true whether you believe it or not. So about 100 years ago, 1980, 1919, uh, I was just a small boy, and uh, um, we had the Great Plague. Now, whether you believe it or not, it happened. In 1939 to 1945, there was the Great War, the Second World War. Whether you believe it or not, it happened. 1994, President Mandela became the president of our country. It happened, whether you believe it or not. So it is with Christianity. The truthfulness of Christianity is not based upon your belief. Your belief is important, but it's not based upon your belief. It's rooted in historical fact. It's objectively true. In actual fact, there would be no Christianity if there was no resurrection. There would be no Christianity if there was no historical person of Christ. There would be no Christianity if there was no ascension, if there's no return of Christ. We'd have no salvation. We'd have no forgiveness of sins. We'd have no savior. We'd have no truth. We'd have no heaven. It's based upon the historical roots of the, of, 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 of the historical history of Jesus who lived and died and rose again 2,000 years ago. The second thing about the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is supernatural. So notice verse 3 again. You have the death and resurrection of Christ. Well, that's supernatural. Verse 8, you have the Holy Spirit. That is supernatural. Verse 9, notice there, you have the physical ascension of Christ. That is supernatural. Verse 10, you have two men dressed in white or angels speaking. That is supernatural. So what that tells us is that the Bible is unashamed. It's not embarrassed about the supernatural. God works through both the natural and the supernatural. And so you have miracles throughout the scriptures. It starts with creation. It moves on to Moses and the ten plagues, Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. It moves to Elijah, to Elisha. It then comes preeminently to Christ. And you have the virgin birth of Christ. You have God becoming flesh. You have the miracles of Christ. You have the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the return of Christ. You see, God is active in both the natural and the supernatural. God is not limited by these things. God works in the past, in the present, in the future. God works in history. He works in the age to come. He works in natural things. He works through supernatural things. So if you have a problem with the miracles of the supernatural, your problem actually is that you don't believe in the God of the Bible. You believe in a very weak God, some other God. He's sort of anemic or pathetic. No, the God of the Bible is the God who can do and work through both the natural and through the supernatural. That is not illogical. That is not unreasonable. If he is the God of the universe, then surely he acts both in history and he acts supernaturally. 
Thirdly, will you notice verse 10 and 11? The kingdom of God is eschatological. Now, that is a Greek word. comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means the last things, the end times, the final things. The kingdom of God is not only past, it's not only present, it is future. He speaks here about the last things, verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we've learned about the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and now we are told about the return of Christ. This same Jesus, it will be personal, it will be physical, it will be objective. He will return just as he has ascended into heaven in time and space, so he will return to us in time and space. Now, you may say to me, that's a little bit hard to believe, Martin. It's 2020. Do we really believe in the physical, supernatural return of Jesus? Absolutely we do. He pulled off his first coming in rather unusual circumstances. I don't think any of us would have guessed it or made it up. Well, I think he can pull off his second coming. He can act in space and time, and he can bring this world as we know it to an end. One of the great... um, one, 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 one of the great uh, key reasons why the return of Christ is so important is, is because it tells us that this world has a beginning and an end. We live in a culture which thinks there is no God, there's no purpose, there's no real beginning, there's no real end. Remember what Henry Ford said about 100 years ago, forgive the language, he said, history is just one damn thing after the other. Luke tells us, no, there's a beginning which started in Genesis. There will be an end which ends in Revelation 22. And before the end of time, Christ will return. He's come the first time. He will come a second time. And when he returns, he will bring this world as we know it to an end. He will usher in the final judgment. He will usher in the new heaven and the new earth. The scriptures are quite clear that God has a purpose, not only for us, but for his world. There's a beginning and there's an end. And the return of Christ is the key to that end. The last thing that we can notice about the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God is personal. Now we pick that up, it looks a little bit strange, but it is there in verse 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now he's speaking to the disciples. They had to live through the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, now the ascension of Christ. They were waiting for Pentecost when Christ would pour out his Holy Spirit and invade their lives through the Holy Spirit. We live after Pentecost. We don't have to wait. No, you receive the Holy Spirit. You are baptized with the Holy Spirit when you are converted, when you are born again. And that is personal. 
The Holy Spirit invades your life. And many of you here this morning or online have experienced that. You have experienced the work of the Holy Spirit invading your life. How do you know that you've received the Holy Spirit? You know that you've received the Holy Spirit because you have a changed heart. You have a changed mind. You have changed hopes. You have changed dreams. You have changed aspirations. There are things that you used to hate that you don't hate any longer. There are things you used to love that you don't love any longer. You have new loves. You have new hates. God has changed your mind. He has changed your heart. That is the work the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit who personally invades your life and changes you. In fact, one of the signs, verse 8, that your life has been invaded or changed is that you want to share this gospel with others. Let me close and say there is no kingdom without a king. There's no kingdom without a king. And the key to the kingdom of God is the king. King Jesus, the presence of King Jesus, the reign of King Jesus, the rule of King Jesus. And becoming a Christian, experiencing the Holy Spirit in your life, is when you submit to King Jesus. You submit to his rule, to his kingship, to his sovereignty. And you call on him to lead you and to use you and to change your life and so grow his kingdom to others. Wouldn't today be a good day if you've never submitted to King Jesus? Wouldn't today be a good day to say, King Jesus, will you change my life? Will you change my heart? Will you invade my life and make me one of your subjects, one of your citizens? Well, let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. You may want to tell God where you are. Father, there may be someone here this morning who has felt God the Holy Spirit in their mind, in their head, in their heart, as we've been singing, as we've been reading the scriptures. There may be someone here this morning who wants to say, Oh God, will you have mercy upon me? Will you rescue me? Will you make me a Christian? Will you make me one of your subjects, one of your citizens, one of your children? Will you invade my life by the Holy Spirit and help me to live for you? Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we do not live for the kingdoms of this world, but we live for King Jesus. And so will you help us as we go into this week to live for him, to speak for him, to stand for him wherever you've placed us. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.